We do have a, a handout for our time together. It is on the back table, and if I could get a couple of volunteers to kind of work this middle aisle and give a copy to anybody who needs one. There's also a few pens back there. Um, you guys are special. You can have my copy. Also on that table, and we'll talk a little bit more about this later this morning, you'll notice there's a prayer guide on there, um, our um, Westgate Missions Conference uh, prayer guide. And so, again, we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about that at the beginning of our next session, but if you see that there, you want to make sure you grab a copy of this. It's a chance to pray through each of our missionaries and organizations from the time between Sandy Island leading up to the missions conference in October. It's a great little resource our missions board has put together. So we'll look at that uh, later, but we want to make sure you get that this weekend. All right, so if you have a handout, great. Um, Let's pray, and we're going to spend some time together in God's Word. Gracious God, we love you and uh, we praise you. Lord, we have sung some very important things this morning about who you are and what you've done. And Lord, uh, we just praise you that those things are true, and we pray that we would uh, believe them in the deepest parts of our hearts and live out of that truth. Uh, So would you help us to see you more clearly, Lord, as we look at your word uh, this morning, and we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Well, in 2013, there was a a prominent uh, denomination in the United States, uh, 10,000 or so church denomination, that was in the process of publishing a new hymnal. Uh, And one of the songs they wanted to include in that hymnal was the song we just got done singing, In Christ Alone. There was just one problem with the song. For the publishers of the hymnal, they were worried about what they considered a controversial phrase in that song that would, quote, have a negative impact on worshippers' education. And the phrase in question was, till on that cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. That phrase, the wrath of God was satisfied. The idea that the main purpose of the cross was to satisfy God's wrath for sin, was seen as problematic, controversial, we can't have that. And so, so what they wanted to do was exchange the, that line for, till on the cross when Jesus died, the love of God was magnified. Which is a true statement, but does not say the same thing. When the authors of the song did not allow the change in lyric, they consequently left in Christ alone out of their new hymnal. So what about the suggestion that Jesus' death satisfies God's wrath, his holy anger against sin? What is it is so offensive about that that a major denomination would strike that song from their hymnal? Especially when you consider the uh, idea that Christ died for sins is the cornerstone and essence of the Christian faith. And these, uh, uh, these folks were not the first or, and certainly not the only Christians to take such offense or to question the truth or the importance of what we call substitutionary atonement. That's our topic. Uh, the belief that Jesus died in our place as a substitute 
to pay the penalty of our sin, that's atonement. Uh, Some have criticized this belief as being too new. If you look through church history, uh, they suggest that it was kind of invented by the Protestant reformers in the 1600s, and that everybody before that simply believed that Jesus died to deliver us from evil and the power of Satan, but not to protect us from the wrath of God. Uh, That's one of the uh, suggestions. Others have criticized the doctrine as being too narrow. So it leaves no room for other understandings of what Christ accomplished on the cross, like delivering us from evil or like uh, demonstrating the love of God such that we are motivated to love others. And, uh, or it's too narrow in that it kind of prioritizes Paul's description of the cross at the expense of, say, the message of the Gospels and the emphasis on the kingdom. So it's too cross, not enough kingdom. Uh, or it focuses too much on God's wrath and not enough on his love. And so it's just too narrow of a doctrine. Uh, and more recently... Some have accused substitutionary atonement as being too violent, suggesting that it amounts to, quote, cosmic child abuse. Quote, a vengeful father punishing his son for an offense he's not even committed. Now, we chuckle at that, maybe some of us, but uh, Albert Moeller, who's the president of the Southern Baptist uh, Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky, uh, recalled on his very first day, his very first class, and his very first day of seminary in that very institute that he now leads and has since reformed, uh, his professor of New Testament studies explaining to the class as they're going around saying why they were at seminary, what they wanted to learn. One young woman was there and said, I, I want to understand and, and just glory in the blood of the cross. And at which point the professor interrupted her and said, there will be no bloody, clo- bloody cross religion in this classroom. It is beneath dignity and self-respect to believe in a God who had to kill in order to forgive. These are some of the questions people are asking. And so, so what do we make of those charges? Are we right to place so much emphasis on the cross of Jesus as a sin-bearing sacrifice uh, to God. And even if, you know, you and I are not wrestling with that question, even if we're not wondering whether we've got the cross wrong, which is what many of these folks are suggesting, even if I'm not wondering that, there still remains a risk for us at taking for granted this glorious and most important truth. Uh, We talk so much about the cross. We just sang like four songs about the cross. We... Uh, every sermon, if I'm doing my job right, mentions and, and points to the cross. Every, we, we are trained from almost infancy that the correct answer to every question in Sunday school is Jesus and the cross. So we're just surrounded by the cross. And, and what can happen, and that's a good thing, but what can happen if we're not careful is that we can begin to lose our awe at what the cross really means at what Christ has really done. And so, and whether we lose, you know, the doctrine on paper or whether we just lose sight of it in practice, the result can be is that we lose our foundation, our very basis for relationship with God. We lose the power for walking with God because we lose sight of the person and what he has done for us before God. And so for all of these reasons... Uh, we're going to spend this weekend exploring 
anchoring ourselves in and marveling over the cross of Christ and what we call substitutionary atonement. So uh, our way forward this weekend, um, there's no way in a weekend to, to answer all of the different challenges that have been posed over the years to this doctrine uh, or even to answer all of the questions we might have about it. Uh, but, so the main thing that I want to do this weekend is try uh, as best as we can to answer the question, what does the Bible teach about the atonement of Christ? What does Scripture teach about the meaning of the cross? Because ultimately, that's our authority, after all. Um, in the Scriptures, God is speaking. This is His sufficient, divinely revealed Word. And so our goal is to hear and to see, is this how the Bible explains what Jesus did? As a, to, to be a sacrifice that atones for our sin. And so we're going to, in the rest of this session, we're going to talk about the pattern uh, we're going to look at substitutionary atonement in the Old Testament, how the Old Testament story gives us both kind of the pattern and the categories, so that by the time you get to the cross in the New Testament, you've got a framework in mind to make sense of and understand just who Jesus is and what he came to do. And then uh, after our break, Pastor Bruce is going to help us look at the person, at Jesus himself in the Gospels and his own ministry and how he saw the cross and specifically uh, substitutionary atonement at the center of what he came to do. And then tomorrow morning, we're going to look at the letters in the New Testament and just take a sample of those, mainly in Romans, and see the power of substitutionary atonement, what difference it makes that we have a Savior who stood in our place and bore our sin. So that's where we're going this weekend. Um, Before we jump into the Old Testament, uh, we do need to make sure we all know what we're talking about by the phrase substitutionary atonement. It's kind of a, a theological term, and it's easy to kind of get lost in big theological terms sometimes. And so I've given you a definition on that handout. Sometimes we refer to this as penal substitutionary atonement. Uh, even bigger word, but it's pretty simple when you break it down. So uh, if you have a handout, you've got it right there on the front page. So penal means having to do with a penalty. So we talk about our penal system, for instance, our prison system. So penal means dealing with a, with a, a penalty. Substitutionary is accomplished by a substitute, somebody who takes our place. We've all had substitute teachers you know, in school and so on, someone who shows up in place of your regular teacher in order to teach the class. Uh, And then atonement is a sacrifice that covers or cleanses sin. Sin being an offense against God. And so atonement is a sacrifice that covers or cleanses sin. So you put it all together, penal substitutionary atonement. What we're asserting is that on the cross, Jesus Christ covered the cost of our sin atonement, by taking the penalty of our sin, penal, in our place, substitutionary. Is that clear as mud? All right. Hopefully it'll become clearer as we go, but I wanted to make sure you had a a definition there. Um, Or, you know, to make it even simpler, 1 Corinthians 15.3, Christ died for sins, according to the scriptures. Or 1 Peter 3.18, for Christ also suffered once for all, excuse me, for Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring you to God. 
penal substitutionary atonement. He suffers in our place to bring us to God. Or, as we often sing, bearing sin and scoffing, bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood. Sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah, what a savior. Christ the atoning substitute. Or, and can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died he for me who caused his pain? For me who him to death pursued? Or, my sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh my soul. Or, till on that cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. For every sin on him was laid, here in the death of Christ I live. So is this what the Bible teaches about the cross? And if so, what difference does it make for our lives? That's, that's our question this weekend. Uh, and I want to start by looking at the pattern, the Old Testament, seeing the pattern of substitutionary atonement in the Old Testament scriptures. And I want to do that by looking, you know, obviously we could spend, I don't know, rest of our lives looking at that question. Um, But what I want to do is to look at two of the greatest promises of salvation in the Old Testament and ask the question, is sacrifice really necessary for God to save? Is sacrifice really necessary for God to save? After all, I mean, he's God. He can do anything he wants, right? So he could just, couldn't God just choose to save his people without a bloody sacrifice? Uh, Couldn't he just forgive and cancel the dead and uh, without having to punish someone or something? Uh, If so, then maybe the cross doesn't have to do with bearing sin, and we have been wrong. Um, But what we see when we look at the Old Testament is that the idea of substitutionary atonement did not begin with Jesus and his ministry. It is the consistent pattern of salvation in the Old Testament, especially when you look at the greatest act of salvation in the Old Testament, in the Exodus, and when you look forward to the even greater act of salvation that the Old Testament says is to come, a new exodus. And those are the two examples of salvation we're going to look at. Those are the two promises. God's promise to save his people from slavery in Egypt in Exodus 6, and God's promise to rescue his people from Babylon, uh, captivity in Babylon, in a new exodus in Isaiah 52. And so we're going to look at those two texts and see, is sacrifice really necessary for God to save? So go ahead. If you've got a Bible, awesome. Some of you have an app on your phone. That's fine with me. I'm going to trust that you're not like texting and, you know. Uh, but pull those out. Go to Exodus chapter 6. Exodus chapter 6. And we're actually going to be starting to a, a new series through the book of Exodus next Sunday on Sunday mornings at church. So, so this is kind of a I don't know, a preview or a warm-up for, for what's to come. But Exodus 6, a little bit of context for the book of Exodus. Uh, it's a story of God rescuing his people, Israel, from slavery in Egypt. 
And so Israel had migrated uh, down to Egypt as just a family, really, of 70 people. And they were down there to, uh, you know, looking for preservation from a famine. But while in Egypt, as they grew and multiplied and became a nation, the king of Egypt saw that as a threat and decided to put them into uh, slavery. And so for four generations, Israel faced great uh, bondage and brutality, uh, being forced to be slaves of Egypt. And God hears their cries and remembers his covenant and raises up Moses, his servant, to lead his people out. Uh, So this is uh, God's promise. Look at Exodus chapter 6, verses 2 through 5. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land which they lived as sojourners. So basically summarizing Genesis there in those two verses. That this, here's the God of Abraham who's promised to bless all nations through Abraham, to make Abraham into a great nation, to give them a special land. He's that God. He is now... Verse 5, moreover, I've heard the groaning of the people of Israel whom the Egyptians hold as slaves. He's heard their groaning. He knows about their suffering. And I have remembered my covenant. He's not forgotten who they are, what he promised to do. And so, so this God who made a covenant with Abraham is now acting on behalf of his people to rescue them. He promises to bring salvation. And look at how he describes the salvation he promises to do in verses 6 through 8. So first he promises specifically to save them, verse 6. And he uses three different words to describe it because one's not going to be good enough. So he says it three times in three different ways to make sure they don't miss the point. He is going to save them. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. A great acts of judgment like the ten plagues that were about to happen and like the parting of the Red Sea. God promises to work salvation for his people. Then verse 7, he promises relationship. Here's the reason I'm going to save you. I will take you to be my people. And I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. The goal of salvation is relationship with God. The goal of salvation is a right, honoring relationship with God, so that he might dwell with his people, and they might be uh, his people. He would be their God. And then finally, in verse 8, he promises an inheritance. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. God is going to do some big things for this little people. He's going to rescue them, make them, bring them into relationship in a special way, uh, and give them a land. Uh, he promises to do this. And, and notice, though, when we think about the saving aspect of what he promises to do, look again at verse 6. And notice what God is saving them from in verse 6. From the burdens of the Egyptians and from slavery to them. God is promising to save them from a terrible situation. But some have noticed he doesn't say anything about saving them from their own sin here. 
And so some have concluded from that and from other places that, that the Exodus really is not a spiritual salvation in a sense. It's more of a geopolitical deliverance. God is rescuing a people group from another oppressive people group. And, and so in that sense, it, it, it's kind of a metaphor for the cross, but it's not that closely related. This is what some suggest when they look at the Exodus story. And after all, you have to recognize uh, Israel was not in Egypt because of their sin. They're not suffering as a punishment for sin, unlike the later exile in Babylon, which they were. Israel's there because they were looking for food, and while they were there, they became the victim of Pharaoh. And so their suffering isn't a punishment or a penalty. And, and some have pointed those things out and said, this really isn't so much about being saved from, from sin, but saved from Egypt. And overall, that is the dominant theme. But there's one problem with that suggestion. If that's all that's happening in the story of Exodus, that, that a people group is being rescued from another oppressive people group, then what's the one part of the story that has really makes no sense being in there when you think about it? There's one part of the story that you could completely do without if this is all that's happening. The Passover. What in the world is the Passover doing in there if all that's happening is a national deliverance? And when you look at it, it's actually the Passover that's the center of the story, isn't it? Uh, have you ever wondered why the final plague, and if you're not sure what the Passover is, we'll, talk, we'll explain that a little bit more in a minute. But, you know, you think of the ten plagues. Have you ever wondered why it's only the final plague where Israel actually had to do something to be distinguished from Egypt? So there's all these plagues happening, blood in the Nile, frogs, you know, gnats, livestock are dying, all these kinds of things. And oftentimes we're told that the kind of hardship and, and, and the plagues that affected Egypt did not affect the people of God in uh, Israel, who was living in a, in a little town called Goshen. So, for instance, um, uh, chapter 9, verse 6, all the livestock of the Egyptians died, but none of the livestock of the people of Israel died. Or only in the land of Goshen, where the people of Israel were, was there no hail. So the hailstorm took out everything in Egypt, but not in Goshen, where the people of Israel. Or uh, chapter uh, 10, verse 23, all the people of Israel had light where they lived. Plague of the darkness. You can't even see your hand in front of your face. All the people of Israel had light where they lived. And in all of these cases, in the first nine plagues, they didn't have to do anything for that to happen. It just, they were distinguished. But then you get to the tenth plague, and all of a sudden, Israel has to do something to make sure they're not taken out by the same plague. Why? Why is that? What makes the tenth plague, the plague of the firstborn, unique? This is the first plague where God is pouring out judgment for sin by taking life. All of the first nine plagues were really annoying and frustrating. But in none of them did God actually pour out judgment. But now that he is judging sin, guess what? Israel's guilty too. They're no different from Egypt when it comes to having sinned against God. And so if they do not have a substitute, they're going to get killed too. That's the point of the Passover. That Israel, because, 
because God is judging sin in the Passover, Israel needs protection. So look, look at Exodus chapter 12. So Exodus is the second book in the Bible, clear at the beginning, uh, chapter 12, and I want to read verses 3 through 13, so you can follow along as I read here. Tell all the congregation of Israel, okay, so, so we've had the first nine plagues, Pharaoh's been warned that the tenth plague is coming, that, that God is, is going to send a destroying angel through the city at night and strike down the firstborn son in every household. And that's coming. And so now here's God's word to Israel. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household's too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat, and you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb should be without blemish, stainless, perfect, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel, that's the cross piece above the door, of the houses in which they eat. And they shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted, its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until morning. Anything that remains in the morning you shall burn. If in this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So why all of a sudden, after being automatically excluded from every other plague, does Israel now have to do something in order to avoid being stricken? Again, because God is finally judging sin. He's not just delivering Israel from a terrible situation. He is doing that. But he's delivering them from that situation by punishing the sin of Egypt. But if he's going to start punishing sin, Israel needs to be protected because they too are guilty. And so the lamb dies in place of the firstborn. The lamb is a substitute in order to bear the the, the penalty of sin dying in place of Israel. And it covers not really just Israel's firstborn children in the homes. It does do that. But if you go back to chapter 4... God says to Moses, when he's sending him to Pharaoh the first time, he says, Israel is my firstborn son. This is what you're supposed to say to Pharaoh. Israel's my firstborn son. Let my son go that he may serve me. Otherwise, I'm going to kill your firstborn son. So the fact Israel as a nation is understood to be God's firstborn son, that's why this plague is the climactic plague. And so God is saving his people. 
Sin must be judged. God is saving his people by raising up a substitute to die in their place. Now, so what we see is that sacrifice really is necessary for salvation in the Exodus story. Um, And it's not because God is limited. It's not because he just couldn't save some other way. It's because God is holy. It's because God is holy. He is above us in majesty and authority. It's uh, he's beyond us in moral perfection. And because he is holy, he cannot abide with sin. It must be dealt with. It must be judged. It must be cleansed. He can't ignore it or leave it unpunished. Imagine the criticism that a judge in our court system would receive if he simply declared not guilty every time somebody uh, stood before him in court. You know, he'd be run out of town on a rail for being an unjust judge and not doing his job. Imagine how insensitive that judge would be to the victims of the crimes committed by the criminals. He's just kind of willy-nilly declaring not guilty, not guilty. And, And when you think of it in that sense, when you think of it in terms of God's holiness and righteousness, you see that punishing sin is not, you know, we, we, we think of God's wrath, and it's an uncomfortable topic. And usually we kind of picture this kind of curmudgeonly old guy next door who, who just is ready to strike down anybody who steps foot on his lawn. And that's what we think of when we think of the wrath of God. But when you understand it in light of his holiness, you begin to see that God's wrath really flows out of his love. What father would allow evil and injustice to go unchecked? in his family, or among his family? What judge would allow that kind of thing to happen? And so it's God in his love that compels him to act, to stop evil, to stop injustice, and to defend his righteous name against the rebellion of his creation. Uh, One author puts it this way, God's love is not sentimental, It is holy. It's tender, but not squishy. It involves not only compassion, kindness, and mercy beyond measure, but also indignation against injustice and unremitting opposition to all that is evil. A God unwilling to address sin and wrongdoing is a God not worth trusting in. That's what it comes down to. And as long as we're the ones being sinned against, we totally agree with that idea. A God who's not going to address sin and wrongdoing when I'm the one being sinned against, I don't want anything to do with that God. But until we realize that we too are on the guilty side of the equation, um, that all, this is all of our predicament. Um, Before a holy God, we are all guilty of sin in big ways and small ways. There's not a single one of us who's not and that sin disrespects God's name. It defrauds him of his glory. It defiles our hearts. It distances us from God. And ultimately, it results in death. Not just physical death, but a spiritual death as God pours out his holy anger on this destructive device called sin. And, and all of that sounds kind of grumpy and overkillish. Um, a lot of the times, if we're honest, it's like, wow, that seems harsh, God. You really got to be that serious with sin. 
But it's only when you understand how bad sin is, how damaging it is, and how much we deserve to be punished for it, that you can begin to marvel over the fact that God has given you a substitute to save you from it. And that's when we begin to understand the true marvel of the cross, the marvel of substitutionary atonement. It's in substitutionary atonement that justice and grace, majesty and mercy, wrath and love come together where sin is dealt with and the sinner is forgiven. And there's no other arrangement where that's possible. Sin is dealt with, a substitute, excuse me, sin is dealt with, the sinner is forgiven because a substitute has taken our place. Imagine, um, imagine being in Israel's shoes that night, knowing what God is doing. Knowing, you know, holding your firstborn son in your arms. Knowing that because of your sin, you know what the right penalty is for this. And then seeing the blood trickle down that doorpost and recognizing that tomorrow morning we're going to leave this land as a family, intact, as a nation, because the lamb has died and his blood covers our sin. That's the marvelous substitution. What we deserve, we don't get it because Christ willingly takes it. The lamb dies for us. My sin Oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O my soul. The consistent pattern of salvation in the Old Testament is that salvation requires sacrifice. And you know, and you see it in this first Exodus. There's one more example I want to look at quickly in a second. But even in between those, think about Israel's worship system. So God comes down to dwell with his people. He gives them instructions for building this tabernacle. We're learn all about that in Exodus this year. But then you get to the book of Exodus, and the tabernacle's done, the glory of God fills it, and nobody's allowed to go in. Because God's too holy. What? Then you turn the page to Leviticus. Here's how a holy God is able to dwell in the presence of an unholy people. He gives a system of sacrifice so that their sin can be cleansed by the blood of these animals. And all of that keeps pointing us forward as the story goes on. But one more example. Turn to Isaiah 52. How are we doing on time? Hey, not bad. Isaiah 52. Isaiah is kind of in the middle of your Bibles. Uh, Usually if you open the Bible in the middle, you'll hit Psalms. And if you hit Psalms, go right. And you'll find Isaiah in a few books. Isaiah 52. So this is a big fast forward to get from Exodus to Isaiah. Um, God has rescued his people out of Egypt. He makes them into his his special nation, his holy nation. He makes what's called a covenant with them, a special arrangement Uh, where he promises to be their God, they promise to be his people. He brings them into their own land in Canaan. He dwells among them in a special way, first through the tabernacle, later they build a temple. And he reigns over them as their king in the special place that he's chosen for them, Jerusalem, where the temple is built. But the covenant that God gives with Israel comes with certain stipulations. 
God does not say to Israel while they're in slavery in Egypt, hey, here's my law. When you obey that, I'll come back and rescue you. God rescues Israel out of his grace. He takes them and makes them his people. But as his people, there are certain uh, expectations of what it means to be the people of God. And so he gives them his law and there are stipulations within that law. And there are uh, blessings for obedience and curses for disobedience. And the biggest curse, the worst curse, was a full reversal of the blessing, to be exiled from the land. Um, blessings for doing what God calls them to do. Curses for exchanging the true God for idols and following their own ways. And the severest curse was basically the undoing of the exodus, that they would be pulled out of their land and sent into exile. And eventually, as you fast forward through the story of Israel, that's what happens. Uh, They continue on in idolatry, worshiping false gods, the gods of other nations, and eventually God uh, fulfills his covenant by punishing them and sending them into exile in Babylon. But God does not leave them in Babylon. He has promised already in Deuteronomy that even when he does that, he'll bring them back again and redeem them. And the book of Isaiah talks a lot about that. Um, Isaiah, it hasn't happened yet when you get to Isaiah. Isaiah is a prophet and God is using Isaiah to tell Israel what's coming. But, but one of the images that the prophets often use to describe this other, this future great act of salvation that's about to happen is they describe it in the language of being a new exodus. So you had your old exodus, Israel's taken out of Egypt. Well, once they go into captivity in Babylon, I'm going to do a new exodus and bring them out. So Jeremiah, for instance, Jeremiah 23 describes it like this. He says, therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when they shall no longer say, As the Lord lives who brought up the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. That had been the act of salvation God had been known for, saving them from Egypt. But the day's coming when that's not what God's going to be known for anymore. Instead, they will say, as the Lord lives who brought up and led the offspring of the house of Israel out of the north country and out of all the countries where he'd driven them. God's going to do a new exodus. And he's going to act to save his people. And, you know... um, Bruce will talk maybe a little bit more about that when we get to the Gospels. But look at Isaiah 52. Isaiah 52 is one of the greatest promises of this new exodus that God is going to do for his people. Where he's going to rescue them from captivity and bring them back to himself. Which is more than about just getting out of the land, out of Babylon and back into Israel. Which is one of the reasons why even though they get back to the land of Israel, a whole lot of the promises of Isaiah are not yet fulfilled until Jesus shows up. Um, that's a whole other sermon, though. So, um, Isaiah 52. Israel's exile hasn't happened yet. Isaiah's looking forward, telling them about it. And it's coming. And here is the promise of salvation that God is going to do when it comes. Isaiah 52, 1 through 6. Awake, awake. Put on your strength, O Zion. Put on your beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city. For there shall no more come into you the uncircumcised and the unclean. Shake yourself from the dust and arise. Be seated, O Jerusalem. Loose the bonds from your neck, the chains, O captive daughter of Zion. For thus says the Lord, you were sold for nothing, and you shall be redeemed without money. For thus says the Lord God, my people went down at first into Egypt to sojourn there, and the Assyrian oppressed them for nothing. Now, therefore, what have I here, declares the Lord seeing that my people are taken away for nothing. 
Their rulers wail, declares the Lord, and continually all day my name is despised. Therefore, my people shall know my name. Therefore, in that day they shall know that it is I who speak. Here I am. So the picture here as he introduces this is poetic, using a lot of metaphors to describe Israel's situation. And the picture here is basically of Israel as a rebellious wife uh, called Zion or Jerusalem, who's been grieving in dust and ashes, having been defiled by her foreign lovers, captive because of her sin. She's been sold for nothing. She's worthless. So it's like the, the items that are left over at the end of a garage sale. No one will spend money on them, so you just give them away. That's what Israel has become through her idolatry. Worthless. And yet God, even though Israel's been unfaithful to him, God has not been unfaithful and will not be unfaithful to her. He says to her, get up, rise up, dress yourself in beautiful clothes, take off your garments of slavery and mourning, take off the chains from your neck and take your royal seat because your husband is returning to you and he will no longer let these foreign nations defile you. He will remove your shame and he will take you again and make you his own. That's the picture of salvation that is coming. And so as the, as the, the chapter goes on, you, you have the picture of the, whatever guards are left in Jerusalem. Jerusalem's been destroyed. The temple's been destroyed. The walls are destroyed. And whatever guards are left there are looking out over the horizon. And here comes a messenger. Verse 7. One who brings good news of happiness and publishes salvation, saying to Zion, your God reigns. That's the message. That, that it's not those gods who reign, the ones who've enslaved you and taken advantage of you. No, your God reigns. He's the one who's on the throne and he's going to rescue you and make you his own. And so the watchmen on the wall rejoice in verse 8. They lift up their voice. Together they sing for joy. For eye to eye they see the return of the Lord to Zion. God is coming back to his abandoned city. Break forth into singing, you waste places of Jerusalem. For the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. He has bared his holy arm. He's flexed his muscles. Before the eyes of all nations and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. God is going to act in a great salvation. And what does that mean for the captives in Babylon? Verse 11. Depart, depart, go out from there. Touch no unclean thing. Go out from the midst of her. Purify yourselves, you who bear the vessels of the Lord. So it's this picture of, you know, forget those foreign gods. Get yourself clean and ready and grab the vessels of the Lord. Those are the implements of the temple, which Babylon had stolen. Go, don't forget those, because when you go back, you're going to worship. That's the picture. God's putting his family back together. They're going to worship. And, but unlike the first exodus, this one, they will not go out in haste, verse 12. And you shall not go in flight, for the Lord will go before you and be your rear God, your rear guard. Sound like a New England accent there, rear God. <laughs> So here's the picture. God is acting on behalf of his people to save them. And it's not just from a foreign oppressor, though there's one of those there that they need rescued from. It's from their own sin. 
But this has to raise a question. Isaiah 52 raises a huge question. Because if Israel is this time being exiled because of their sin, what's, you know, the, the, the news that a king is coming back to his uh, city, have, having been gone for a while, that's only good news if you're a loyal subject to the king. But if you've been in the midst of plotting a rebellion and you hear that the king's on his way back, that's not good news. And in the story of Israel, there are no loyal subjects. And so how in the world can God work salvation for his people when his people are deserving of the wrath that they've received? It is no coincidence that you have a promise of salvation as Isaiah 52, followed immediately by the hymn of the suffering servant in Isaiah 52, 13 through 53. There is a price to Israel's redemption. Salvation requires a sacrifice. And I want to land on that note before we go to break. Look at Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53, let's, uh, let's just jump to verse 3. He, this servant of God who's coming, was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. As one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he, the servant, was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds... We are healed. Do you hear the language of substitution there? He for us. He for us. All we like sheep have gone astray and have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And what's interesting throughout this section, this hymn to the suffering servant, in Isaiah 53, is that the reaction of the people over and over again is astonishment. The kings, you know, people are astonished when they look at him because he's been so brutally injured. Uh, the kings and nations are astonished that, that one who, they, who looks like he's being judged by God is actually acting like a priest and sprinkling many nations. They don't have a category for that. They're astonished. They're, they're overcome with marvel. And, and that ought to be our reaction when we think about this as well. To be astonished that our sin, that everything that I've done in my life, and there is so much for which I regret. There's so much. The words that I've said that have just cut people down, the secret thoughts that I have nursed of anger or lust or resentment or whatever else, uh, the actions that I have done to take advantage of others or simply just not doing things I'm supposed to do, Every single one of us has this dirty laundry list that if we were to hang it on the screen up here, we would all hide and cower in shame. And every single thing on that list was born by our suffering servant. He took the guilt so that we could be forgiven and made clean. That is is marvelous. That is wonderful. That is beyond our ability to, to really appreciate the kind of the magnitude of God's love. 
That is the marvel of substitutionary atonement. Christ died for sins. And we see it as the consistent pattern of salvation in the Old Testament. And as the story goes on, what begins as a pattern eventually, a pattern, a spotless lamb, eventually becomes a person, the suffering servant. And so we shouldn't be surprised at how Jesus explains the cross in Luke 24. If you'd like, you can turn there. We'll, we'll land right here. Luke 24, Jesus has died and risen again. He's on the road to Emmaus and a couple of his disciples are there and they don't quite recognize him yet. And they can't make sense of what's happened. And Jesus explains to them what has happened by saying this. Luke 24, verses 25 to 27. Some of them who were with us went to the tomb, excuse me, 25. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter his glory? Is sacrifice really necessary for salvation? Was it not necessary that the Son of Man should suffer and afterwards enter his glory? And beginning with Moses, which includes Exodus, and all the prophets, which includes Isaiah, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Where does Jesus go to explain the cross? He goes back to the pattern. And Bruce is going to help us see that more after the break. Let's pray and then uh, we'll take a short break. Are we singing? Probably. Probably going to have to skip that. We'll do it when we come back from break. God, thank you for the cross. Lord, there's so many songs which are just that we sing. Uh, that are caught up in the marvel of who you are and what you've done. Lord, would you catch us up in that marvel, Lord? Not, not so that we can put on a show or have an emotional experience, but so that we can know you for who you truly are and know you as a God who sees everything about us and yet loves us despite all of the sin that he sees because you have done what is necessary to take away that sin by sending your son, Jesus. Lord, help us to marvel over your forgiveness and your love, your grace. And help us see it more clearly this weekend. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.